Chapter Eight of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Human Hand: A School Lesson. The hand consists of an undivided broad part and five fingers of different lengths. One of the fingers is called the thumb. It is shorter, fewer jointed, and more freely movable than the rest. Owing mainly to the irregularity of the thumb, the hand is unsymmetrical and cannot be divided into similar halves by a line drawn in any direction whatever. The hands make a pair, and the left hand looks like the right hand seen by reflection from a looking-glass. We can see that the hand is covered by skin, and we can feel that there are bones within. The skin of the hand consists of two layers. The outer layer, epiderm, contains neither blood vessels nor nerves. It does not bleed or feel pain when wounded. It is easy to show by scratching or scraping any thick part of the epiderm that it contains no blood, but perhaps you will not at once agree with me that it cannot feel. In many parts of the body, the back of the hand is one, we seem to feel the slightest touch. But there are reasons for what I have said. Rowing may bring out blisters on the hands, walking may bring out blisters on the feet, and when a blister forms, the epiderm becomes separated from the derm, or inner layer, by a small quantity of water. If you prick the epiderm to let the water out, no pain is felt, but if the needle is passed into the derm, we suffer pain. No blood comes when the epiderm is pierced, but the slightest wound causes the derm to bleed. Though the epiderm itself feels nothing, it can transmit pressure or heat to the sensitive derm within. Press a sheet of thin paper against some part of your own skin, and then stroke the paper with the point of a pin. The movement of the point can be felt through the paper, though paper cannot feel, and in the same way we feel the pressure through the epiderm, though it can no more feel than the paper itself. The skin of the fingertip shows a special pattern, which can be made very evident by pressing it first on a plate spread with printer's ink, and then on a white paper. To get good and sharp impressions, some trouble must be taken. The necessary appliances can be borrowed from a printer. The ink should be more fluid than is used for letterpress printing and must be spread out on a slab of glass or polished copper with a small printer's roller. Pains must be taken to get a very thin and uniform layer. It is best to begin with very little ink and add more if required. Quote, the right hand of the subject, which should be quite passive, is taken by the operator and the bulbs of his four fingers laid flat on the ink slab and pressed gently but firmly on it by the flattened hand of the operator. Then the inked fingers are laid flat upon the upper part of the right-hand side of the card and pressed down gently and firmly, just as before, by the flattened hand of the operator. This completes the process for one set of prints of the four fingers of the right hand. The bulb of the thumb is slightly rolled on the ink slab and again on the lower part of the card, which gives a more extended but not quite so sharp an impression. Each of the four fingers of the same hand in succession is similarly rolled and impressed. This completes the process for the second set of prints of the digits of the right hand. Then the left hand is treated in the same way." Unquote. Galton. By laying a sheet of thin paper on a pad and pressing the inked hand upon it from the wrist to the fingertips, a print of the whole palm can be taken. The fingers can be cleansed by turpentine. India ink, rubbed thick and black, will do, but not as well as printer's ink. After a few trials, we get a sharp impression or print of the fingertip. There is a central point round which a great number of lines are arranged so as to form either spiral or concentric figures. Each line is a ridge, 
with a steep slope facing the center and a broad slope facing outwards. The ridges sometimes branch or run out to a point, and new ones come in, so that the arrangement is not perfectly regular. All these details can be seen by carefully examining a fingerprint, or better still, by studying the fingertip itself with a good lens. No two fingers show precisely the same pattern, but the same finger preserves its pattern hardly changed throughout the whole of adult life. Hence a print of the fingertip is one of the best signatures that can be devised, for it is always the same, and it cannot be imitated. In Bengal, deeds have sometimes been signed by thumb mark to prevent forgery. It has been proposed to use the fingerprints of pensioners to prevent personation by others. Fingerprints of soldiers as a means of identifying deserters on re-enlistment, fingerprints of criminals as a proof of previous convictions, and fingerprints of ordinary citizens as a certain means of identification in case of loss of papers by death or accident. Study the palm of your own hand in a good light, and if necessary with the help of a reading glass. Put a spot of ink on every pattern center that you can find. You will probably make out one for each fingertip, one in or near the fork between adjacent fingers, wherever such a fork exists, a partial concentric system at the base of the thumb, and another, sometimes with a distinct center of its own, about halfway between the base of the little finger and the wrist. In many quadrupeds, there are horny pads, which protect the palm and the sole, and these pads may occupy just the same positions as the spirals and circles in man. In the forefoot of the cat, for instance, the pads on the fingertips, if we may speak of the fingers of a cat, are quite plain. Three of the four pads in the forks between the fingers have run together into one big pad. The fourth, which should come between the thumb and the forefinger, has disappeared, and there is a little pad between the little finger and the wrist. If you examine with a lens the ridges of the palm, you will see a row of pores running along every one. What are these pores? Now and then, when we are heated by exercise, drops of watery fluid can be seen to exude from them, and a thin section of the finger ball shows fine tubes coming up to the pores from coiled sweat glands which are deeply sunk in the derm. These pores are the outlets of the sweat ducts. Different parts of the skin are not equally sensitive to touch. Try, by stroking with a fine watercolor brush, whether the tip of the finger or the knuckle most easily perceives the lightest possible touch. You can distinguish, without the help of the eye, sheets of paper of slightly different degrees of roughness by stroking them with the fingertip, but if you try with the knuckle, you will not succeed so well. The greater or less acuteness of sense of touch in different parts of the hand may be more accurately ascertained in the following way. Take a hairpin or a pair of blunt-pointed compasses and open the points until they can just be distinguished as separate by the fingertip. Read off the distance of the points on a scale and then make the same trial with the back of the hand. I have just tried this and find that the back of the hand, in order to distinguish the points as separate, requires them to be distant more than 14 times as far as is requisite in the case of the fingertip. There are parts of the skin, on the back for instance, which are less sensitive than any part of the hand. The fingertip has a special structure, which is known to be closely connected with the sense of touch. The old naturalist and anatomist Malpighi made this discovery, and he tells us how he was led to it. Examination of the tongue of the ox showed him that the upper surface, which comes in contact with the food, is beset with numerous papillae. Some of these, for he was able to distinguish three kinds, 
had a special nervous supply, and these, he thought, were particularly concerned with the sense of taste. The lips, being employed by the ox to investigate its food, might be expected to show papillae too. Malpighi stripped off the epiderm of the lip and found the deep layer of the skin crowded with them. The human hand next suggested itself for inquiry. Examining the tip of the finger with a lens, he made out the ridges, and what he rightly took to be the sweat pores on them. Here again he satisfied himself by microscopic examination that the deep layer abounded in minute papillae, and now he felt convinced that the sense of touch resides in the papillae of the skin. You can form a fair notion of these papillae if you can persuade some companion to allow you to look at the surface of his tongue with a magnifying glass. On the tongue, the papillae are covered with a very delicate skin, which does not conceal their shape. But on the fingertip, the epiderm is comparatively thick and fills up the depressions between the papillae, which nevertheless retain both their form and their sensitive character. Point out the chief differences between the skin of the palm and the skin of the back of the hand. The palm is covered with ridges and crossed by conspicuous furrows. It bears no hairs. The epiderm is thick, but rendered sensitive at the fingertips by vast numbers of papillae projecting into it from the derm. The skin of the back of the hand is thinner, and the creases are close-set. The fingernails are attached to this side. The veins show through the thin skin. The bones come nearer to the skin at the knuckles on the back of the hand than they do anywhere on the palm. These differences depend chiefly upon the circumstance that the palm is the grasping surface. When the fingers bend, the palm is contracted and the skin wrinkled, while the back of the hand is stretched. In a child's hand there is usually much fat, so that the wrinkles and creases do not show so plainly, and the veins on the back often cannot be seen at all. On the back of each fingertip is a nail, whose superficial position tells us that it is part of the skin. Does it belong to the epiderm or to the derm? This may seem a difficult question, but you need only notice whether the nail bleeds and suffers pain when cut to find the right answer. Like every part of the epiderm, the nails are always growing and always being worn away along their free edges. Some dervishes in eastern countries allow the thumbnail of the right hand to grow very long, then they point it and use it as a pen. I think they must find it awkward to put their right hands into their pockets, but very likely dervishes have no pockets. Is there anything in the paw of the dog which answers to the nail of man, any epidermal structure which defends the tip of the finger? You will see that the dog's claw is such a structure. The dog's claw can be used as a weapon. The nail of the human finger is but a poor weapon. We might call it a claw which has become so broad and thin as to be incapable of inflicting a serious wound. How many bones are there in the human hand? There are, first of all, five long bones enclosed in the skin and flesh of the palm. The knuckles show where the upper ends of these long bones come. The long bone of the thumb is more movable than the rest and well clothed with flesh. These long bones are named metacarpals. Beyond them come the phalanges, and you will find that every finger has three phalanges except the first finger or thumb, which has only two. So we see that the bones of the hand are five times four minus one, that is nineteen. Make a plan of the bones of the hand by drawing strokes to represent the different bones, or better still, string pieces of tobacco pipe, broken to the right lengths, along five wires, which can then be fastened together at one end. The hand contains skin and bones. What else? 
You know that it bleeds freely if wounded, so it must contain blood vessels, that is, veins and arteries. There is a pulsating artery which can be felt through the skin of the wrist. Do you know how to find it? If not, you will be told by and by. We can see a few of the surface veins through the thin skin of the back of the hand. Notice that they are irregular in arrangement, differing in different persons, and often differing in the two hands of the same person. They branch frequently and run into one another, forming irregular circles or ovals. If you happen to have in the back of your hand a pretty long vein with very few connecting branches, you can show in which direction the blood of a vein flows. Let your hand hang down till the vein becomes gorged with blood. Then press it hard with a fingertip. The vein becomes empty just above that point, while below it it is as full as ever. The same thing can be still better seen in the veins of the arm. The observation that blood in a vein accumulates, not on the heart side of an obstacle, but on the side away from the heart, had some little effect in convincing men that the blood in a vein regularly flows towards the heart, and not away from it, but there are much more convincing proofs than this. The hand must contain innumerable nerves, for it is sensitive in every part. The presence of nerves is also shown by the fact that we can move separate fingers and even separate joints at pleasure. There are not only nerves which convey impressions to the brain or spinal cord, nerves of sensation, but nerves which convey impressions from the brain or spinal cord to the muscles, and so originate movements, nerves of motion. Then we have in the hand a good deal of flesh, the same kind of substance which when cooked and set before us at table we call meat. Flesh or meat is stringy, being composed of long fibers which are attached usually at both ends to the bones. When a fiber contracts or shortens, it pulls the bones, and that bone which is most free to move yields to the pull and changes its position. When you bend your finger or your arm, you do so by the help of masses of fleshy fibers which contract in consequence of an impression received through a nerve, and probably starting from the brain. Nerves of sensation and nerves of motion are often both concerned in the movements of a limb. If, for instance, I happen to put my finger on a cinder which is so hot as to burn, I lift the finger as quickly as possible. What happens is this. A nerve of sensation conveys to the nerve centers an impression of pain. The nerve centers send an urgent message along another nerve, a nerve of motion, to a particular muscle, commanding it to contract. The muscle contracts and the finger is raised. The fingers are capable of a number of distinct movements. They can be bent or flexed, stretched or extended, moved towards the middle line or adducted, or moved away from it or abducted. The thumb, and in a less degree the forefinger, can be moved in any of these ways independently, but the remaining fingers are inclined to move together and do not easily move to any considerable extent one by one. The playing of musical instruments, especially the piano and violin, trains them to independent movement. You will remark that you can flex the fingers more powerfully than you can extend them, and the same is true of other parts of the body also. When we lie quite at our ease, as in bed, the limbs are a little bent, because the flexors are more powerful than the extensors. In many animals, the inequality is much more marked than in man. Look at the front or palm side of your wrist, and you will see two cords beneath the skin, which are evidently concerned in flexion for they stand out more plainly when the hand is strongly bent. In a thin arm, other cords can be made out, besides the two just mentioned. All these are flexors of the wrist and hand. 
Deeper in the wrist and palm, so they can be seen only by dissection, are the flexors of the fingers, long slender tendons, popularly called leaders or guiders, which lie close to the bones, being held down by crossbands and sheaths. On the back of the hand, near the knuckles, you will see another set of tendons, which become most evident during extreme extension of the fingers. At the base of the thumb, two extensor tendons are quite plain. Since you are not able to dissect a hand and trace the tendons which move the various parts, I would advise you to get a fowl's foot, strip off the skin, and look at the tendons of the toes. On that side of the leg and foot which joins the sole, you will find a large flexor tendon which sends branches to the four toes. When it is pulled, the toes become bent. On the other side of the leg and foot is a branched extensor tendon, which raises and spreads the toes. You can learn from this example what a tendon is, a smooth, very strong, white, shining, fibrous cord, which is firmly united to a bone. It often lies in a glistening sheath of the same fibrous substance and may be prevented from slipping out of its place by crossbands. The sheaths are plainly seen in the fowl's foot. A tendon is always attached to a muscular or fleshy mass. Without muscular fibers, there would be no contraction, no pull on the bones. The tendon itself cannot originate a pull, it can only transmit it. If you bear your forearm, grasp it near the elbow, and then flex the hand, you will feel the muscles swell. During contraction, they become shorter and thicker. This will convince you that the flexion of the fingers is not caused by contraction of muscles in the fingers or in the wrist, but almost entirely by contraction of muscles in the thick part of the forearm near the elbow. If the muscles which flex the hand and fingers were placed close to the bones on which they act, the hand would be a large, soft mass, and the fingers so clumsy as to be incapable of rapid, precise, and combined movements. The sheaths and crossbands hold the tendons close to the bones during flexion. How awkward it would be if wherever the wrist or a finger joint was bent, a tendon stretched across the angle, taking the shortest course between its two points of attachment. We have noticed the two flexor tendons which can be seen through the skin on the front of the wrist. One of these, that nearest to the thumb, is a convenient guide to the pulse. A good-sized artery, the radial artery, here runs just beneath the skin on the thumb side of the tendon. By pressing the finger ends upon the radial artery, the pulse is felt. The usefulness of the human hand is greatly promoted by the power of turning it round. Hold your hand palm upwards and thumb outwards, then turn it over so that the palm looks downwards and the thumb turns inwards. There are few animals which can perform that simple action. Those which can do so are nearly all climbing animals, which use the hand, and perhaps the foot also, to grasp with, and may require to turn the hand in all sorts of positions in order to get hold of a bow in the most convenient way. Observe that you cannot turn your hand over except by swinging the thumb round the little finger. Lay your hand on the table and perform this action once or twice. Then try to swing the little finger round the thumb, keeping the thumb pressed against the table. The action can only be imperfectly executed, and then by bending both elbow and wrist into a very awkward position. This shows us that the hand is not merely rotated on a pivot or pin. Such an arrangement as that would be quite impossible. There are two long bones in the human forearm, the radius and the ulna. It is the radius chiefly which carries the hand and forms the wrist joint, 
It is the ulna chiefly which enters into the elbow joint. You can make a model of the arrangement with two long pencils, a cork, and an India rubber band. Lay the pencils side by side, with the cork lying between two of their ends, and bind the pencils and cork together by the India rubber band. Cut out a small paper hand, attach it to one of the pencils at the end remote from the cork. This pencil will now represent the radius. The thumb must, of course, be turned away from the ulna. Mark one side of that end of the radius, which is farthest from the paper hand. The paper hand might now be brought round by making the radius simply revolve on its own axis, but there are many muscles, tendons, and fibrous bands which pass from the radius to the ulna, and these effectually prevent any such motion. That end of the radius which carries the hand can, however, easily be made to revolve about the ulna, and this without disturbing seriously the fibers which connect the two bones. The hand can be turned over, the thumb swinging round from right to left, or from left to right, as the case may be. The radius will thereby be crossed upon the ulna, and by looking at the marked end you will see that it has revolved through 180 degrees. It is still simpler to take a strip of paper, say 12 inches by 3 inches, fashion a crude hand with a thumb at one end, and towards the other end cut the strip along its middle for half its length. Hold the ulnar strip down upon the table and throw the hand of the model over when the elbow end will be found to have revolved as before. The radius and ulna are not displaced so far as to strain the bands which pass from one bone to the other, the wrist joint is undisturbed, and the elbow joint, mainly formed by the humerus and the ulna, is very little affected. If you can get an actual human radius, you will see that the revolution of its upper end is greatly facilitated by two features. There is a smooth cupped end, which abuts upon a rounded prominence, occupying nearly half of the end of the humerus. There is also a smooth circular rim, which rotates within a groove upon the ulna. The forearm and hand of man can be changed at pleasure from the supine position, radius and ulna parallel, palm upwards, thumb outwards, to the prone position, radius crossed upon ulna, palm downwards, thumb inwards. Tree-climbing quadrupeds can usually rotate the hand freely. Carnivorous quadrupeds, which strike their prey with the forepaws, have a limited power of rotation. Quadrupeds which use the forelimb solely for running have it fixed in the prone position, and the ulna is usually much reduced in size. It is not difficult to procure the forefeet of certain common animals and to prepare skeletons of them. The dog, pig, and sheep make an instructive series, which becomes much more interesting if the horse and bat can be added. From the actual skeletons of the forefeet, rough models are easily made with bits of tobacco pipe and wires. Dog. There are five fingers, all bearing claws. All the metacarpals are separate. The first finger, or thumb, is short and has only two phalanges. The rest have three each. The dog's hand is very much that of man, but the thumb is short and not opposable to the fingers. Notice the strong claws and their firm insertion. Pig. There are four fingers, all bearing hooves. Three and four are large, two and five much smaller, not reaching the ground. One, the thumb, is wanting altogether. Sheep or ox. Two fingers, three and four, bear hooves. There are vestiges of fingers two and five in the form of small hooves without separate phalanges. The metacarpal, here called the cannon bone, is long and apparently single, but really consists of the third and fourth metacarpals united. 
In the young sheep, the bone has a double cavity. There are splint bones, vestiges of the second and fifth metacarpals, on the sides of the upper end of the cannon bone. The long fingers have each three sesamoid bones, that is, bony nodules formed in tendons, usually opposite a joint. There are two sesamoids behind the base of the first phalanx, and one behind the base of the last phalanx. Horse. There is one finger only, the third, with a metacarpal and three phalanges. Sesamoids, as in the sheep. The splint bones, one on either side of the upper end of the metacarpal, are the last vestiges of fingers two and four. Bat. There are five fingers, of which the first, or thumb, is short and bears a claw. The rest are prolonged and support the flying membrane. A common plan can be discovered in the forelimbs of the man, dog, pig, sheep, and horse. Even the wing of a bird, though extremely unlike the rest, exhibits most of the same parts. We can distinguish quite easily the humerus, radius, ulna, metacarpals, and phalanges. No hand has more than five fingers. No hand has more than two phalanges in the first finger or thumb. But though a common plan may be traced in the hand of these different animals, the plan is liable to be changed according to special needs. The parts of the limb may be 1. Enlarged, 2. Diminished, 3. Suppressed, 4. Fused together, 5. Altered in form, 6. Altered in function, lastly 7. New parts may be added. Thus 1. The middle finger is enlarged in the horse, 2. The side toes are diminished in the pig, 3. All the toes but one are suppressed in the horse. 4. The radius and ulna are fused together in most hoofed animals. 5. The phalanges of a bat's fingers are altered in form, becoming very long and slender. 6. The hand of man has changed its function and has ceased to be an organ of locomotion. 7. The paddle of the whale contains many additional phalanges. To everybody except anatomists, the hand is an organ for grasping, and when the thumb ceases to be opposable, most of us would say that there is no longer a proper hand. In the same way, everybody except anatomists, when the great toe as well as the thumb becomes opposable, as in the gorilla or orang, would say that the animal has got four hands instead of two. If there is no hand, the functions of a hand may be performed by other parts. Thus, there are animals which grasp with the mouth, such as dogs and birds, with the tongue, such as a giraffe, with a proboscis formed of the enormously prolonged nose and upper lip, as in the elephant, or with the tail, as in the spider monkey. I could even tell you of a fish, the sucking fish, which holds onto floating objects by the top of its head and neck. There are animals which scratch or comb themselves with their teeth, with the claws of the hind limb, birds, or with spines on the tongue, the lion and cat. While the same function may be discharged by different parts, the same part may discharge different functions. Thus the extremity of the forelimb may be used as a hand, or as a paddle in the whale, or as a wing in the bird, or as a fin in the fish, or as a sucker in the lumpfish. Lastly, it may disappear altogether in the serpent. End of chapter 8